millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 50, The Greeks Learn to Read and Write Again. Previously on The Fan of History, the Greeks lost their Linear B writing during the Bronze Age collapse and the resulting Dark Age. The Phoenicians have invented a very easy-to-learn alphabet. Greeks and Phoenicians have trade relations. So, Dan, this is a pretty interesting topic. Yeah, I love this. I love this episode. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> we are going to finish the 750s BC. So all we right. can head into 740s BC next time, where it will all be dark and gloomy. Oh, but this yeah. is a fun one. <laughs> cool. Oh, except for some news from Babylon. Oh, boy. Trouble so the again. king of the week is Sarduri II of Urartu. He's the most powerful king in the Near East. He's the seventh king of Urartu. We have his writings. The Neo-Assyrian Empire still going very bad, going worse, going really bad, super bad. Oh, boy. Assyria has its weakest king ever, but uh, Sadur II is the strongest king ever for, or one of the strongest kings ever for Rartu. The only one making any reasonable decisions in Assyria is Shamshi Ilu, the field marshal, who is defending Assyria from Urartu in the north. But Urartu is assembling allies to take on Assyria from three directions. Well, that's a that's a decent tactic. Attack them on it the is. fronts. And we will see that play out in the 740s BC. But now we are heading to Babylon. Babylon is now free from Assyrian influence because the Assyrians are busy destroying their own empire. So Nabushuma Ishkun, the king of Babylon, has an excellent position to 
start a revival of Babylon and go back to the old days of Babylon where it was the center of the world. But uh, he is weak and useless. And we have yeah. a That's not, not a good combo. <laughs> Yes, we have a political comment on Nabushuma Ishkun as king. And this is from Nabu Suma Imbi, the governor of Borsippa. And we have his exact words, what he <laughs> feels about this time in Borsippa. Disturbances, disorders, revolt and turmoil occurred in Borsippa, the city of truth and justice. During the reign of King Nabu Shuma Ishkun, the Decorian, the Babylonians, the Borsipians, the Chaldeans, the Armenians, and the people of Jabbat sharpened their weapons for many days to fight one another. And they slew one another. Moreover, they fought with the Borsipians over their fields. So things are not very good in Babylon right now, but that was the Arameans, not the Armenians. That's a big difference. Sorry. Um, in 756 BC, the cult figure of Borsippa's god, Nabu, yes, that Nabu, we talked about Nabu, the scribe of the gods before. Mm -hmm. uh, the cult figure was prevented from going on his New Year journey by all the fighting in the streets. And it seems that the old king, Ereba Marduk, did not really succeed in restoring the foundations of the land, which was his title. He was the restorer of the foundations of the land. But Babylon is still weak. And uh, this is a super bad sign because the carrying around your god on New Year's Eve, that's super important in Babylon. <laughs> right. <laughs> and when you can't do that, it's like, oh god, what's the god going to think about this? We couldn't carry him around on New Year's Day. And we will see when the Babylonians finally get destroyed. This is a key factor that their king did not care about carrying around the god on New Year. So you have to carry around your god on New Year. That's important. For once, I'm going to talk about something that did not happen. Did not happen. I Yes, okay. I tend to stick to stuff that happened, but in 753 BC, we have a very famous thing <laughs> yes. that did not happen in this year. Uh huh. So, first of all, she-wolves do not nurse Latin babies. <laughs> I'm so sorry there was we no have wolf. to bring this up. <laughs> yes, there was no wolf. It did not nurse these babies. <laughs> There was no foundation of the city of Rome in this year. It seems that Romulus and Remus, though there might have been a guy called Romulus, but the things he did in the legends and the things his, his three successors did, uh -huh. Talius Sestilius, Ancus Marius, and even my favorite, Numa Pompilius, who marries a wood sprite. They are Excellent. all mythical figures. These are all lies. I'm sorry. <laughs> it did not exist. Yes. And um, we know already that there was a settlement on the Palatine Hill from the 10th century BC. So a village was present. Something was present. But Rome as a city is extremely hard to figure out when it sort of became a town of importance. 
but we will have Rome enter our narrative as an Etruscan city ruled by an Etruscan, Lucius Tarquinius Priscus, in 616 BC. Okay. So no Roman kings in this podcast, I'm sorry, but we can't tell you fairy tales. <laughs> right. Although that episode when he married the wood sprite, that, that's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> And we do, we're not going to talk about the rape of the Sabine women or yeah, this city of all male bandits and stuff. It's great stuff, but it has no place here. Right. So back to what actually happened. In 752 BC, Sarduri II of Urartu campaigns to the southeast. And this is worrying for Assyria because the Urartian campaigns of conquest, they usually go north where there are no Assyrians, but this is going to the southeast, into the Sagros Mountains. He hits Babilu and Baruata. He also invades Urme for the third time, while mounting a campaign in the Etuini. And here, Sadur is taking numerous prisoners and booty. He is probably fighting the Manians. But despite this, the Manians are also benefiting from the downfall of Assyria or from the decline of Assyria, because the Manians are also growing more powerful. And that's probably why Sarduri is attacking them. And the Manians can still be controlling the Persians and the Medes at this point. And this is all happening in the northern Sagros Mountains in what is today Iran, around Lake Urmia. So Urartu doing good things. In 752 BC, we also have Shamshi'ilu being the eponym of Assyria again. Remember that one noble in Assyria is mentioned in the Eponym Chronicle every year. And mm -hmm. Shamshi'ilu is here again in the Eponym Chronicle. Big evidence that he was still alive here. And the, the line from the Eponym Chronicle is pretty boring. It's in the eponymy of Shamshi'ilu, the commander-in-chief. The king stayed in the land. Wah, wah. Yeah, the worst thing that can that you can read in the Eponym Chronicle. But Shamshi Ilu still around, still controlling the army, still controlling the fortified city of Karshalmaneser, influencing Syria around him, and um, he is four kings in, and he's still going strong. There were probably a lot of images set up of Shamshi'ilu. He is now more powerful than the king of Assyria. But these images, uh, we can't find them today. Because somebody destroyed them all. Wow. Do we know who? Shamshi'ilu is the aging field marshal. At this, the, the late autumn of his life, he is about to run into the best Assyrian commander there has ever been. The super Assyrian, the number one Assyrian of all time. Really? Yes. So in two episodes, we will meet someone unlike anyone we have ever seen before. And probably the most interesting person we have discussed in this podcast. That's amazing. Okay. In uh, that's enough trailer for now. <laughs> so it's 751 Join us BC. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> next time on Fan of History. <laughs> um, 
751 BC, Uzziah, the king of Judah, he catches leprosy. Yikes. And this, uh, the Bible tells us that this is because of his many sins against Yahweh, against the Lord. Yeah, I'm sure that's why. I'm sure that's why it happened. I think there is another physical reason for him catching leprosy, but catching leprosy as the king is not a good idea. <laughs> so they are putting him in a separate house. This could have been a cave. They could actually have been uh, uh, walling him in to this cave. So he was ruling from a safe distance from anyone else. <laughs> He's just doing like paper airplanes with rules, kind of just pushing them <laughs> out the window. And nobody dares touch them. I think he had to scream his orders. But he's still the king of Judah. And this is, of course, a problem. So he makes his son, Jotham, the co-regent of Judah. And this sort of puts a pretty bad end to the very good reign of Uzziah. Judah had a golden age, too, in these years. And Uzziah was a good king. But he ends his day as a leper in a cave. That's terrible. In 750 BC, Saduri II of Urartu campaigns to the north. And here we have some nice Urartian names of stuff he <laughs> did. So uh, bear with me. Saduri II marches along the Kars Adrahan road against Kulkai. And Kulkai is ruled by Kakani, the king of Kusharkni. Kulkai is the unconquered territory long known to the Greeks as Colchis. The rich land of the fabled Golden Fleece from the Ooh, story okay. of Jason. Yeah. And they have barred Urartian access to the Black Sea and its valuable trade routes. And it might be at this particular time that Urartu first comes into contact with a whole new enemy that they have not really encountered before. They've heard of this from the people in the north that they beat up, but they have not met these guys. And these could have been, it is possible that they are the Chimerians. We talked about the Chimerians before. Yes. And we know that, yes, on the Russian steppes, there are steppe nomads. And the ones hanging out to the north of the Caucasus Mountains, they are the Chimerians. Uh, Chimerians? Is it a K or C? Um, I, I, I always say Sumerians, but then it gets mixed up with, you know, the comic books. I'll try to, I'll try to stick with Sumerians because this is obviously the influence for the name oh, in right. the novels in the corners. Uh, but we have the Scythians, and they are more powerful than the Sumerians, so they are driving the Sumerians away from the steps, and the Sumerians have to go somewhere. And of course, the, the sources for steppe nomads are horrible. And the Scythians is a very unclear term, but the Cimmerians is not as unclear, so we'll try to sort that out there. These are probably Indo-Europeans. So the Cimmerians, probably Indo-Europeans. Okay. The Scythians pressure the Cimmerians and intend to take over their pastures. The Scythians are more powerful and numerous. And... Uh, the Sumerians, then, they are identified with the catacomb culture. This is an archaeological culture on the steppes. It seems that Sumerians come in two 
tastes, there are two sorts of Samirians, and mm-hmm. they are equal in numbers, according to one source. They are divided in the royal race and the Samirian people. Hmm. So we have royal race Samirians, a Samirian people Samirians. There might have been some sort of antagonist between them. And they are not a single nation by any stretch. There are probably a lot of divided tribes. Okay. And one credible suggestion is to link the royal race with the median line of the early Western Iranians who imposed themselves upon part of the catacomb people in the 13th and the 12th century BC. So we have some influence from Iran on the Sumerians. And their home area was the North Pontic steppes east of the Dnieper River and the Crimea. So that's pretty far from the Caucasus. And there will be a Sumerian invasion. If the people Saduri II of Urartu encountered here were the Sumerians, they were just a vanguard. And they might have arrived in the Caucasus region already around 1200 BC and mingled with something called the Koban culture. There is a date from the historian Eusebius that dates an early Sumerian invasion to 1076 BC. The Urartian sources mention the people called the Ishkigulu living in Armenia in 774 BC. But we will have to wait until the 710s before all the Sumerians come into <laughs> the mountains. And we will have a major barbarian invasion in the 710s. Like, and it will still be a big surprise for everyone. So we have one of these classic horse people invasions that just wrecked the political landscape in the 710s BC. Okay. But that's it for the end of the 750s. And now we have to talk about the main subject of this episode, Greek writing. And this is, of course, super hard to date. It could change tomorrow if we find an earlier example of Greek writing. Maybe somebody already has in the last few years. Mm-hmm. But this is sort of where I put this. I think this seems to be reasonable in the 750s BC some Greeks learned to read and write again. We have some evidence of Greek writing from this decade. So the background. Right before 1000 BC, the Phoenician alphabet of 22 letters was fully developed. This had been going on for a while, but now we have 22 letters in the Phoenician alphabet right before 1000 BC. And having an alphabet is an extreme advantage over the other writing systems in the world at this point because it's super easy to learn compared to cuneiform that the Assyrians use. You have to spend your entire childhood trying to learn to read and write to become to become able to do that. That's why no Assyrian king so far has been able to read or write. <laughs> if they had the Phoenician alphabet, they could have done it. And it is clearly proven that Greek writing comes from the Phoenicians. Because the old writing system of the Greeks, Linear B, has nothing in common (laughs) with this new Greek writing. So the Mycenaean writing system before the Bronze Age collapse, it's entirely forgotten. The Greeks know nothing about this in the 750s BC. 
the Greek letters are somewhat different from the Phoenician letters, but they are clearly of Phoenician. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Origin. It is possible that Achaeans that fled to Cyprus from the Dorian invasion never really lost writing, but at some time they changed to this Phoenician system. And remember, Phoenicia had a colony on on Cyprus, so that's where that could be a point, the first point of contact. But the rest of Greece, most of the islands, mainland Greece, everything, they lost writing. And even these oldest Greek texts show in their letter forms a significant difference from Semitic writing, from the Phoenician writing. So writing could have been going on for quite a while, but we have no evidence of that. But it seems that they should have started with Phoenician letters straight up. Right. Uh, and they don't. So there's probably an undocumented phase between the borrowing and the oldest documentation we have for Greek writing. Uh, vowels. Is that the English word? Vowels? Vowels, yeah. Vowels, yeah. They first appear in Syria and might have transferred to Greece via the Almina colony. But the original 22 letters then have no vowels. There is a bronze bowl with an inscription in Phoenician letters that is found in Crete, dated somewhere between 950 and 850 BC. But that's, uh, that seems to be a Phoenician item that was just taken to Crete. But Crete does indeed seem to be the first place that are proof of Greek writing. Uh, but if you ask the Greeks then, how did you learn to read and write again? <laughs> the Greeks answered that we have a poet called Stichikorus. He lived 630 to 555 BC. He says that there was a guy called Palamides who invented writing. We have another Greek, Hecateus okay. of Miletus. We'll talk about Miletus in this episode, actually. This is a city on the Turkish coast. Uh, he says that Danaus brought writing to Greece from Egypt. And the Greeks tend to think that everything cool comes from Egypt. 
there's there's no way this writing would have come from Egypt. Yes, right? and once again, never listen to Greeks and Romans trying to explain stuff that doesn't <laughs> have to that doesn't have to do with them. So they will just tell it was Semiramis or it was the Egyptians. <laughs> Semiramis or the Egyptians. It's their go-to yes. scapegoats. <laughs> yes. Herodotus is the first Greek that says that the source of Herodotus, the father of history. Oh, I want to talk about him, but he says that the source of Greek writing is the Semitic alphabet. And he also has a story that Cadmus and Cadmus's team of Phoenicians, he was a Phoenician, brought writing when they settled in Thebes. So this was probably the closest to the truth. Uh, the Phrygians, who are around in uh, Anatolia, they probably learned writing from the Phoenicians as well. And they, can they could bring... It is possible that they brought writing to the Greek world so that it was a sort of waypoint, a middle station for writing. Uh, in archaic Greek writing, this is the archaic period of Greek history, we have different alphabets in different regions. And the official Greek alphabet, the first appearance of a unified alphabet in Greek is in 403 BC in Attica. So the alphabet will be very divided <laughs> for 350 years after this. But I think that's only natural with the, the communication of the time, etc. Oh, yeah, you would have... Everything would be regionalized for yes. a long so time. It was pos probably possible to read the text from Sparta if you were a Thebian, but it was probably hard. So now let's look at the earliest Greek writing. Uh, as I said, it was around 750 BC. At any time, we could find an earlier object. And the very earliest writing is from both sides of the Aegean Sea, which is kind of weird. You would expect that writing would appear earlier on the east side, closer to the Phoenicians. Right. We think that the alphabet probably spread along the sea trade routes because everything spread along the sea trade routes in Greece. Uh, the earliest finds are from 750 to 700 BC. It is not widespread in 700 BC. And writing spreads slowly, really slowly. Most of the early writing, if you look at, if you Google like Greek early writing or something, you'll find stuff from the 7th century BC. Okay. So there are very few examples from the 8th century BC. And one of them is the, the Dipylon Jug found in Eubea, and I would expect writing to appear in Eubea first, because the Eubeans are the most powerful city-states, Chalcis and Old Eritrea. This is uh, on the Dipylon Jug, you can find graffito hexameter in really bad handwriting. <laughs> and it seems to be a prize for a dance competition, presumably at a public festival. Oh, that's funny. Yes, and here we have this enormous difference. This is, to me, one of the biggest evidences that the Greeks are different to everyone else in the whole world and that they are truly the cradle of Western civilization because everyone else who have learned writing so far in history, they have done almost only two things with the first writing. The two things you write about if you are any ancient culture is like, Either I have 13 cows, 
like inventory of In, stuff. Yep, and I was just thinking inventory or economy of some kind. Yeah, or you do what Sargon, the great king of Acadia, did in the third millennium BC. You write about how awesome you are. I am the king of the universe. Wow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. But this is not what the Greeks are doing. Uh, there were probably a lot of things written on leather and papyrus scrolls, and we've lost that. That's what happened to Phoenician writing, right? But we'll look at some other early Greek texts and see what they are about, and see if we can find any inventory or megalomaniac texts. <laughs> the Machaean, uh, the Mycenaean texts before the Bronze Age collapse, that was in, in the 13th century BC, they were like that. They were inventories. Uh, or <laughs> megalomaniac texts. And they, it was a difficult language, like uh, cuneiform, only the scribes could read. But this new writing then, much easier to learn. So once people start reading and writing, it will become widespread in the 7th century and the 6th century BC. So we will reach a, a level of literacy that's, that is only rivaled in Phoenicia. But this will happen to Assyria as well, because the Phoenician alphabet, combined with the Aramean language that was very easy to learn, will spread across all of the Middle East. But the Greeks, they really pick up writing when once they get going. Uh, there are some uh, public statements among the early inscriptions. So if, and if you make a public statement, like, <laughs> said, no alcohol allowed in this park, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> right. They explain something to reading public, and that sort of means that a lot of people has to be able to read for that to work. We find these prices for competitions. We find owners' names on objects, and that's kind of inventory-like, but sort of this cup is mine. We also find epitaphs very early, uh, texts about dead people. Right. We find religious dedications. And we find uh, no prose. So prose is not yet an art in Greece. So nobody's writing stories at this time. Uh, we find early graffiti, including highly personal remarks about individuals. One of the earliest artifacts is Nestor's Cup. Nestor's cap is a cap then, and it's meant to be amusing. And you can read the text on it. Oh. It says, I am Nestor's cup. Whoever drinks from me will have pleasure. That's a pretty weird thing to write. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you made me read it. <laughs> In the 7th century BC, uh, there will be codified laws there will be records of public works and lists of victors in contests. For example, the Olympiad. There will be interstate treaties on bronze tablets. There will also be poetry and epic prose in the 7th century BC, but we have no evidence of that in the seven, in 750s BC. But there is no history. There is no megalomaniac claims about somebody's greatness. Hmm. And there are very few administrative lists. Um, Two very important writers will soon appear. There will be more important writers, but two of them deserve a special mention already at this point. And one of them you've heard of. 
It's Homer. Homer. What do you know about Homer? Um, the Iliad and the Odyssey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so dating this guy is pretty hard. Uh, there is a question if he was a real person or if he was just somebody who was made up to explain why these stories existed. Uh, he is sometimes said to be blind. But in the early 7th century BC, in one of our early 7th century BC episodes, if you get there, I will talk a lot about Homer. I will try to make the case that he was a real person. We know quite a bit about him. I will make the case that the Iliad and Odyssey are written by the same person. And okay. uh, I'll, leave, I'll leave Homer here for now and talk about Hesiod. Hesiod wrote... Uh, some stuff, but most the most famous work of his is Work and Days. And Work and Days is dated to 750 to 650 BC. <laughs> it is supposed to be later than Homer. Okay. And we'll talk about Hesiod as well in the 7th century. Uh, but Work and Days is a very interesting document, and it's it comes down to us. Most of this early writing, of course, is lost. But Work and Days talk about what it's like to live in Greece at this time. So it's sort of the concerns of everyday people, probably very rich everyday people, but it is it gives us a picture of life in Greece at the time. So work and days, recommended reading. The Greeks themselves placed two writers before Homer and Hesiod, and that's Orpheus and Musaeus, but this is not a podcast about literary history, <laughs> so we, we'll, uh, we'll leave those guys. Um, but we'll talk more about Homer and Hesiod later. Okay. And now we need, we've introduced these Greek city-states, like one per episode or something like that. And now we'll introduce one more, Miletus. 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 Yeah. This is on the Turkish coast. It could be the biggest Greek city-state of this time. They are not as extrovert as the Eubians yet. They haven't colonized a lot. But uh, it's the biggest and wealthiest city-state of Greece right before the Persian invasion in the middle 6th century BC. It is mentioned in the Hittite records before the Bronze Age collapse. And it was a Mycenaean stronghold between 1450 and 1100 BC. It was probably raided by the Sea Peoples in the 12th century BC. But then the Dorians invaded mainland Greece and a lot of Achaeans, a lot of Ionian Greeks fled to over the sea to Miletus. And there is a legend that Miletus was still occupied. And these uh, Ionians killed all the men in Miletus and married the women. I'm sure that was consensual. <laughs> Probably not. But Miletus is a powerful Greek city-state located um, in, on the east side of the GNC. It will be a player in the Lelantine War coming up in the 720s BC as well. The Lelantine War will mean the end of the dominance of Euboea among the Greek city-states. But Miletus will come out all right of the Lelantine War, and it will be a very great colonizing city when the colonization gets going 
Uh, and Pliny the Elder mentions 90 colonies founded by Miletus in his work of natural history. So remember, Miletus on the coast of Turkey, being a Greek city-state, influencing events in Greece. All right. So now the Greeks can read and write, and they are all set to start colonizing for real. I wonder how much of expansion is predicated on um, similar communication. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like now that they can all read and write, they can actually send each other messages saying, hey, you know, if you send, if you get together so many bushels of wheat and this many cows, we can go this far. And they can send another message to someone who is making wine, you know, yeah. get provisions together and coordinate. Yeah, you just write contracts as well. Yeah. But if you give me this, I will give you that. And, and have it in writing so you can point to it and say, that's what we agreed. Exactly. And laws aren't just random. They're actually <laughs> yes. written down so you know when you've broken something. Or And uh, a big difference then to Babylonian laws, for example, the laws of Hammurabi, is that everybody, or at least everybody of importance, could read the laws when they start writing laws in the 7th oh, century. yeah. So I think uh, writing is really good for the colonization moment. And we'll spend the whole episode talking about Greek colonization in the 730s. Because this is a phenomenon. This is something that rarely happens in history. Yeah. This, a culture spreads this quickly. It is pretty interesting. It is super interesting. And it will... Uh, go on for a much shorter period than I uh, thought when I sort of read about the Greeks in school. Huh. This is very much an explosion. <laughs> well, they, and suddenly the Greeks are everywhere. I was about to say, they saw an opportunity and went for it. They sure did. All right. And, well, and you have to remember that the Phoenicians hmm? have been doing this already for 200 years, but they are hmm. nowhere as near as efficient as the Greeks. Hmm. I wonder what sets them apart. And that's it for the 750s BC. Now we are about to have it, head into the 740s BC with gloom and civil war and oh, plague. Oh no. So what's happened? What are we going to talk about in the next episode? We'll talk about the Assyrian Empire growing even weaker. Oh boy. The plagues and the civil wars of the reign of Ashurdan III that ended in 755 BC will seem like the good old days. No, <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> it's the deathbed of the empire. Unfortunate. All right. Well, folks, please visit us at facebook.com slash fan of history. Also the fan of history.wordpress.com. If you want to follow Dan, it's at Dan Horning on Twitter or me. I'm at Cerulean says hi. But if you really like what we do and you'd like to hear more, please consider going to patreon.com slash fan of history. That is where you can support us and what we do. And it's a very direct way. Help us keep producing this content. Also, you can go to YouTube, find us fan of history, subscribe, like, and share, give us a review on iTunes. And we will read it here on the show. We sure will. Yep. So, for this week, I am Brennan.
And I'm Dan. And this has been The Fan of History. The Assyrian is coming. Dun, dun, dun. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.